Hi there and welcome back to episode 14 of Digging Through Dominoes. I'm your host, Terry Anderson, and in this show, we try to dig through the dominoes of our past so we can change the games for our future. Welcome to Digging Through Dominoes, a podcast that looks at mental, physical, and emotional trauma through real and inspiring conversations. This is your safe haven that welcomes you in, but also isn't afraid to talk about what hurts the most. And now, here's your host, Terry Anderson. I have been reading a lot of Bessel van der Kolk and had a, a really great concept of an episode to bring to you. And then some personal things ha happened. I have had some kind of a weird virus, the whole family has, for the last several days. I had been, during those two days down, I had been watching a lot of videos, of interviews with Bessel van der Kolk and Dr. Romani, Anna Runkel, just to name a few. What I have been doing was going through complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. And I'd been going through things that I had learned in books. And this, some things happened today. And I realized one of the things that I promised during this podcast, the entirety, was to be very blatantly honest and truthful with you. I think a lot of times, at least I did, going to therapists before I found the doctors I have now, it was very sterile. It was very cold. It was very academic in that I felt very judged. I felt that the people I was seeing you know, although it did start at the beginning of the ACA, which means I haven't been in therapy for 12 years. I've been in therapy for 14 freaking years. The reason I mentioned the ACA is because at that time, psychiatrists and therapists in particular, or in my experience, were jumping ship. They didn't know what the future held for them. They didn't know what was going to happen, how they were going to get paid. People were jumping left and right. And I, to my best guess, went through in two years, went through probably six or seven psychiatrists and several therapists. None of them I could really get a good feel with, so that was good. Because the whole, the whole situation led me to where I am today. This is going to be kind of a difficult episode for me to get through. It is going to be really transparent. Uh, there are some things that I realized last night. Going through this process of therapy, one of the things that many of the books that I've read, that the psychiatrists, the psychotherapists, the authors have said is you have to feel like you're in a safe place to be able to take that deep dive into therapy. And I haven't felt safe 
in a long time. Actually, I don't really think I've ever felt safe. In the last couple of years, I've made a lot of progress and that I felt good enough. I felt safe enough to look into my past and see things that I didn't want to see more than surface level things. There are still boxes to unopen. There are still boxes to unpack. You know, it's do you open them? Do you unpack them? One thing I want to say is I've, during this journey, especially with this podcast, I think it's been really good for me because it's really made me do some deep dives in, in several areas. I have realized in a lot of ways that I mimicked my parents. Even though I tried to do a 180 from my parents, I ended up traumatizing my kids in ways very similar to the ways I was traumatized, but by different means, if that makes sense. And I'll, exp I'll explain some of that. I got married, I think I told you all the first time when I was probably 18 years old because I couldn't go back to my parents. My parents made it blatantly clear that that was not going to happen. Ended up with a daughter. Ended up married again to my son's birth father. And that didn't work real well. Both he and I were from traumatized families. But I didn't know I was from a traumatizing, traumatized family. Uh, what do they say? Um, traumatizing, uh, trauma-inducing, I don't know, family. My parents, as well as his parents, had traumas of their own. So neither of us, I think, re I don't know if he had ever been to therapy. I had never been to therapy. I knew I wanted to go to therapy, but I didn't know why I wanted to go to therapy. Probably because of my life, I felt sucked. He and I got married, and that didn't go well. We, it's not that either of us were bad people. It was the wrong time at the wrong place. And we both had our own things to deal with. And I think we both dealt with them inappropriately in some ways, inappropriately some in other ways. One of the things that I remembered when I was thinking about that last night, I was going through uh, listening to Bessel van der Kolk about the traumatization of children, especially the primary caregiver. Well, I was the primary caregiver for my son and daughter, my daughter and son, I guess I should say, in birth order. And I don't think they really understand, and I don't think I really understood the damage that I did with things that I thought I was making the best choice. And in one instance, I was pushed into a choice I did not want to make by my mother. We've already been through the loss of my first son that was ex extremely, to this day, extremely traumatizing for me. There was a situation, and some things happened that should not have happened. And at that point, speaking with my mother, we decided that it would be best for my daughter to move up with my mom. You know, my, my ex-husband and I were starting to argue. Things were getting ugly. It was just a lot of bitterness, a lot of ugliness that I didn't really want her seeing. And she was not biologically his, so I had that right to be able to send my daughter to my mother. That was the wrong move 
I had been her primary caregiver, and when I sent her to my mother, I thought I was doing the best thing for her when, in fact, it was the worst thing for her. I broke that attachment bond. She was probably four years old, four or five, when this happened. And I can see how that affected her for the rest rest of her life. She is still alive. I haven't spoken with her since probably 2013, 2014, something like that. And I think a lot of it is, I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I think I'm a reason for it. I think she's a reason for it. I think some of the choices she made are a reason for it. I, I think um, a lot of the things that happen in, in this household stopped that relationship or I should say stunted it if it comes back or not I don't know but I'm in a good point to where if it doesn't come back then that's fine you know I can I can live life I'm going to be fine but I traumatized her when I sent her away I thought it was the best thing to do and like I said it was the worst thing to do and then the next thing I remembered I had been the primary caregiver of my son and at that time, we lived in Brownsville, Texas, which is, or Port Isabel, which is very tip, tip of Texas. And my parents lived in the DFW area. And I needed to get out of there. I needed to get into a much calmer environment. And I needed to start work. I didn't have a car at the time. And I needed to be able to be someplace where I could work and I could get things situated and I remembered something that happened. And all last night, I dreamt about it. I remember when I left for the airport. I don't know who was driving me. But my son was about 18 months old. And as I was getting into the car, I was hugging him. I was kissing him. And he knew. He knew something was up. And as I drove away... In my head, coming, you know, I'm coming back to get him. He doesn't know that. He's a baby. He stood there crying and throwing a temper tantrum, which my son never threw temper tantrums. He was always an easy, very carefree, happy baby. And I drove away. And I can remember looking back at him so broken. And uh, crying because he knew his mom was leaving. He didn't really have a concept of time at that point. You know, mommy's going to come back. Mommy's going to come back and see you. Mommy's going to, we're going to work this out. He didn't have that concept. And so by doing that, I did the worst thing to him I, I, I could have done. I, I broke that primary caregiver um, attachment, and I didn't see him for several months after that. I ended up getting him back, and we worked really hard. You know, I was really happy with my two kids. They were wonderful, wonderful children. I couldn't, I don't know if I said it before or not, but I could not take him with me back to my parents' house because my parents forbade it, and I allowed them to. I allowed them to. I don't know if I can forgive myself for that. 
because I think that was a pivotal point in my son's life that determined a lot of his life choices. And I'm sorry, all I can see right now is my son with his long, curly, blondish brown hair just just sobbing like I had never seen him sob before. So I have to take responsibility for those early building blocks that even though I didn't realize what was what I had done and I thought I was doing the best, I have to take responsibility and ownership that I did the worst thing that I could have done. I find it interesting that the thing with my son, I completely blocked out until yesterday watching videos. And all of a sudden, I had this flashback and I could see him in his little baby self just in a meltdown, a mommy meltdown, mommy's leaving meltdown. So, you know, I don't know if my kids listen to this or not, but if they do, I need to to, real, to know that I realize that, I recognize that, and ask them to forgive me. I did end up getting my son back. And I married a man that I should never have married. He should have ne- never married me. I think we've been through this. He had just filed for divorce. He had been in a cult. Um, I met him. I met him four days after he filed for divorce and I was nowhere stable enough or wise enough to realize this is, this was a bad situation. He had kids that were closer in my age. He was closer in my mother's age. And I think, well, we've been married for 35 years. We had a break in there that taught me a lot and we got married again, but things weren't different. They're the same. And one thing that I've learned is if you have two traumatized people in a marriage, you're going to have one hell of a time keeping it together. I know that I got married. I can look back and see I was probably looking to fix something in my childhood. Every relationship that I had had was with someone that was unable to be there for me emotionally. They all had material things to give me, but that's not what I wanted. I, I, I needed, I craved the emotion. I think I was trying to fix the part of my childhood that got so messed up. So that was 35 years ago, almost 34 years ago, that we were married and it was tumultuous. You know, in the very beginning, it was very good. And then it was very bad. And then, you know, peaks and valleys as marriages go. But then that brought us to the divorce. And in the divorce, I was very much fleeing. I didn't know what I was fleeing at the time. And I think it was Dr. Romney was talking about the feelings of suffocation that you get, the feelings of drowning, of being entrapped and being in a cage. And I was feeling that at that time. I think it was the marriage. I think it was all of the kids that we adopted. Along with the fact that I had a severely traumatized childhood. Some I can remember, some I can't. I've had more memories show up as of late. 
I can I can look back and I know my husband would agree we should have never gotten married. We have a lot of arguments about things. And I think I told you on my birthday, I had a big revelation that it really wasn't anything that he did or didn't do that, that destroyed that day. It was, I was in an emotional flashback. I didn't even realize I was in an emotional flashback, but I was in an emotional flashback when I was a kid and things, I was never asked like the other kids, what do you want? What do you want to do? I was never made to feel special. I, there was one person in my life that made me, well, more than that, but you know, they were, um, they were not my primary caregivers, my grandmother. And she died when she was 15 or when I was 15. I'm sorry. That would have been crazy if she was 15 and my grandmother and my aunts. One, I was much closer to than the other because of our ages I think she's only 12 or 13 years older than I am. So I, I got unfairly dumped on her a lot, but I loved her. I loved her with everything within me. I can remember her protecting me. We would walk through the cornfields and she was holding my hand. She would read me stories. My grandmother would take me on great adventures. And this one aunt, my grandmother and I, when I got older, before before my grandmother died, we had a lot of fun together. And I missed that. And I'm very fortunate that I had that because there are many kids that have had no one to feel safe with. There was absolutely nothing in their life that they could feel safe about because they didn't even know what safety was. There was no one there for them in any way. And everything was sort of like those scary clown jump out of the box things. I was fortunate enough that I had my aunts and I had my, my grandmother, her father, her brothers, and their wives. So I did know that love was possible. I did know that safety was possible. And I, I searched for it a lot. And when I was, I was reading Bessel van der Kolk's book, and I'm going to be all over the place here probably, so just, you know... Put on that seatbelt. It is going to be a bumpy ride. When I was reading or listening to one of the interviews with Bessel van der Kolk, he was talking about a lot of times with these kids, you know, there is no identity prior to the trauma. There's no, pre, no, no pre-trauma identity, no sense of self. So I was longing for a sense of self. And I think for a long time I took on my grandmother's persona and my aunt's persona or I tried to I really wanted to be like them they were outgoing they were loving they were friendly they were caring they were safe and that is me that is a very big part of me they influenced me and that's part I think of my my personality that was formed was because of them and then the other part of my personality was formed because of the trauma one thing, one of the things that Dr. Romani said in the video was, it's very different saying, my mother did the best she could with what she had. That's very different from saying, my mother was traumatized. She had problems. I was brought up in a traumatic household, but I love her. My father was traumatized. He was an alcoholic. He abandoned me. 
but I love him. That made a lot of sense to me because I've had a really hard time going to therapy and kind of putting the two together because I love my parents so much and how could I even dare tarnish their memories? Well, I'm not really tarnishing their memories. They had traumas of their own, but I love them. You know, I was, I was abandoned by both my parents. My mother was very emotionally unavailable. And I think that's sort of the type of person that I sought out were emotionally unavailable people. And then my dad was gone all the time. And so I can see that with my relationships and I can see it with this marriage I'm in right now is my husband is very emotionally unavailable for me and he has been emotionally unavailable for me since we've been married. And on the other hand, I've been in this state not realizing that's what it was and I'm demanding his attention and getting really mega pissed off when it was going to other places. But it was a replaying of my childhood all over again. Today, I realize that's not going to change. Um, I think I've known for a while that that's not going to change. You know, is he going to get therapy? No, probably not. Can I make him get therapy? No, that's, that's not the right thing to do. I do think some of the things we had sort of a texting conversation after this argument we had. One of the thing that one of the things that he's done continually since we've been married is threaten to leave me. And that was really big with me because that hit on my abandonment triggers. And one of the things that I've done was demand his attention. And when I knew I wasn't going to get his attention, addictions set in not I never had a drug addiction I never had an alcohol addiction people have been told that I was a drinker and that was very wrong it's it's actually comical I told my husband about that a bit ago and he said what are you talking about you can drink a quarter of a drink and you're gone it's like, I know I've stayed away from that stuff because I saw what it did to my parents. So no, I'm not a drinker. I never had a drug problem. I did have addictions with shopping. Not just shopping, but shopping for very fine lingerie, luxury things. And I think right now all I can say is I thought it was going to bring me a sense of self. It was, it was filling a void that really wasn't filled because it was an endless void. It was a bottomless pit. You know, one thing I remembered going through this, you know, thinking about the shopping that I did, I can remember my grandmother telling me, you know, I never really saw her without makeup unless she was getting her makeup on. I never saw her without polish, and she was always dressed to the nines. She drove luxurious cars. She was very, I don't know, the word she had she was an enigma very charismatic and one thing she told me was like I said we don't do this for other people we do these things to make us feel better and I think that might be part of why I went on my shopping sort of addiction there with the shoes and the purses and the you know expensive handmade lingerie and stuff 
I was trying desperately to make myself feel better in a situation I didn't understand and in a situation that I was only being made to feel worse and worse and worse. So I think, you know, I think that was really part of it. And then when you, when you get to trauma, one thing that people don't realize is that trauma isn't just a memory. Trauma is an actual wound in your brain and it rewires the way your brain works. And I think a lot of times, like Bessel van der Kolk said, is we keep trying to fix that. We, we keep trying to change the outcome. But we don't realize that there's a wound there that needs to be addressed. And so we keep coming up with the same situations in the same situations, looking for that magical person that will make everything make sense. And what we don't realize is that magical person that's going to make everything make sense is within us. One thing I found really interesting in his videos was he was talking about in order to do therapy, you have to be mindful. A lot of people with complex trauma, child abuse, child neglect, etc., don't have is the ability to be mindful. And what happens when you go into therapy? He's talking about when you go, you go back there into those memories, you're going through a minefield of explosives and you don't know what you're going to get. And a lot of people just back out and give up. My gosh, I've been in therapy for freaking 14 years. Look how long it took me to get to this spot. You know, where am I going to be in another 14 years besides 74 years old? Um, that That's a wonderful thing to think of is that my best days haven't even happened yet. And I thought some of the best days were when my children were born or when I got married and look how much I, I messed my kids up. It wasn't for lack of trying. It was for lack of knowledge of my own trauma and my own situation. And it was, you know, marrying the wrong person over and over wasn't trying to fix it. I guess trying to fix something wasn't the right thing to do because I kept looking outwardly to fix something that was really on the inside of me. And, you know, one thing that I've, I've run into a lot with this situation of, of trauma and understanding my trauma is people telling me I'm stronger than you are because I'm, I've overcome mine. And that really, it just re-traumatizes people. You're going on the assumption that you're not traumatized when everyone can see that you are and you're unwilling to work on yours, and I'm working on mine. So let's just not go there. That's a really naive thought to have, and it's it's very counterproductive in any type of relationship, I think. You know, trying to get it together when you're so disorganized, when your thoughts are so disorganized, when you have two parts of your brain that are unable to cooperate with each other and put our damages and our wounds in context and our memories in context, when that doesn't happen, you know, we're searching everywhere and we can't make sense of anything because everything's a freaking mess.
even if we try our best, something's going to undermine us or someone is going to undermine us because we allow it to happen. We get blindsided. We don't see it coming. You know, I think a lot of times we do our best. What did I do? I threw myself into raising my kids, even the kids that I didn't want to adopt. I, I did my best, what I thought was the best at the time. And other people like my husband, what they do to normalize their lives and forget about the hidden pains, they throw themselves into work. I got to where I would take pictures on every vacation because he was always on the phone. He can't sit down and feel normal. It chases him. I can see it. Other people can see it. He can't see it. And that's a, that's a big cause of conflict. And I think another cause of conflict is, and I told him this, this today, and I really don't think anyone I know listens to this podcast, so I think this is pretty safe to say, is that I can see the traumatization in him, especially after reading and doing all of this research on being in therapy for most of my life, or a quarter of it, or however much, fifth. I can see the trauma in him. He was raised in a very rigid, very, very abusive home. The kids were abused. The mother was abused verbally. There were a lot of um, very bad things that happened and his father ended up dying probably about the age of 40, 48, 49, something like that of alcoholism. And if you think of what my husband saw when he was growing up, how he saw women treated, how he didn't mean anything unless he did everything over the top, nothing was good enough for their father. It explains a lot, you know, especially the, the throwing your, your um, self into work, hiding in work. Today, we're in the middle of an argument, not really an argument, didn't mean to be an argument, it was sort of a discussion between us about, hey, I need you to realize this, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say, because there was um, a misunderstanding over a text that had come in several days ago. And I have a real thing with being cut off or put to the side when something else happens. And a phone call came in from a builder, from a client that could have waited. And when I heard who it was from, I knew it was business. And he looked me dead in the eye and I looked at him and I said, that phone call can wait. And he picked up the phone call and he took the call which right there told me immediately where I was on his list, which is exactly where I've known I've been on his list for 35 years. But I think a lot of it has to do with his trauma and my trauma. And here I'm healing and he's not able to because I don't know if his trauma is too deep. I don't know what's happening, but I do know if something doesn't happen, you know, I let him know, yeah, we're going to be living together. But if he doesn't progress and work with me in these areas, I'm going to go on and go on with therapy. I'm going to go on with my podcast and try to help people understand what I didn't understand. 
and I'm going to go on to be happy with or without him. The marriage will, will continue, but I'm choosing to be happy. And if that means going on a trip with my son, which my son, I think, really needs some attention right now. He's kind of the left out kid in the family a lot of times because he is so quiet. Then that's what it's going to be. I'm going to take my son. I'm going to I'm going to have his back. He deserves to have his back had and know that his mom is there to protect him at all times. You know, even though he's 31 years old, here I am 60, I still need to know my parents would have me. And I think my parents would have me. I know my dad would, had they still been alive and been able to listen and learn along with me. I think they would have understood a lot. I really don't think my mother would have ever admitted the things that had happened to her because that's just the way my mother was. But I think my dad would, especially if I gave him a gin and tonic. I think he'd, he, he always talked then. <laughs> Which brings me up to, you know, something really interesting that I wouldn't mind getting involved with if I could find a study around here. And that is treating uh, post -com um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder with MDMA, with psychedelics. And what Dr. Vanderkolk was talking about is the way that this works with psychedelics and full disclosure, I have done MDMA in the past when it was legal in Texas at the bar, $10 a tab. It was, you knew what you were getting. It wasn't cut with all this street stuff, but he's talking about therapeutic studies that are going on where everything's very controlled. You have a blindfold on, on. I don't know if you've ever done MDMA. I would not recommend it now. You don't know what you're getting. So my advice is don't. This is a full disclaimer. Do not do it unless you're under a doctor's supervision. But it gives you a feeling of opening up and reaching areas that you can't reach. It's my understanding that they used to give this to terminal cancer patients and their families so they could talk and get things out and really kind of heal those old trauma wounds and wounds from the past, generational curses, things of that nature. And what it does, it gives you a very friendly, very warm feeling when it's legal and pure, made the right way, make that disclaimer. Now, what he's talking about in, if this, with this MDMA therapy is you're blindfolded and it's in a therapeutic setting. You've got one or two, however many attendants there with you and you're blindfolded, which is different than the way, you know, I think the last time I did it, I can remember laying in the driveway and looking at the stars and just everything was so wonderful and you're so open and you're so, it's, you know, it was just a euphoric feeling. But when you have a blindfold on, you can't go outward. You can only go inward. He says it can be a very dangerous situation because you don't know what you're going to find. When you can only go inward, it's really scary. But one, I think, of the, the most intriguing things about this is that people that go through this therapy can heal their, their CPTSD theoretically. And what it allows you to do is kind of come out of your body and see that child 
that three-year-old little girl that was being locked out of the house by her mom, the girl that was being called names by her dad, the little boy that had to be up saluting at 6 a.m. in the morning and whose dad thought it was cute to have him smoke a cigar when he was three years old. You can kind of distance yourself from the trauma and you can look at that child and say, oh my gosh, that little girl that should never have happened to her, how must she feel? And that little boy, oh my gosh, I have so much compassion for him. So you see them sort of as, it's my understanding, I could be wrong, kind of as an out-of-body experience. You, you, you disassociate, which basically is what MDMA does. You disassociate. And I'm really good at disassociating. Um, believe me, I've done, I've done my fair share of disassociation in this process, this journey. But you disassociate from that pain and you can see it as it was as a little child that's being subjected to things that they shouldn't be subjected to. Then you can start to work on it. When you can separate the part of that hurt that's imprinted on us, that trauma that gets imprinted on our soul and on our brain, and you can see it objectively as that child is being hurt. Healing can take place. And one thing I found interesting, I was put on a medication called propranolol for my heart several years ago. And in speaking with my psychiatrist, a lot of people with post complex post-traumatic stress disorder take propranolol. One of the things that it appears to do is it separates the trauma from the event. It helps take away the traumatic feelings, the, those feelings of urgency, those feelings of helplessness and being afraid and, and being abandoned and neglected. It helps you separate those from the actual event. And when I start thinking about it, it was when I started to take the propranolol that I started making these breakthroughs. I didn't make a lot. I made some, enough to keep going and understand, hey, girl, you got this. You can do it and go forward. And that was a huge, huge thing. Is it for everyone? I don't know. I had to get off of it. I had horrible side effects on this medication. But I would totally be down for a MDMA study to see if that could help me. I don't like living this way. I don't like living. I mean, when I had that memory and saw my son crying when he was a baby, I was devastated, absolutely devastated to know that I tried, I thought to do the best with my kids and I ended up traumatizing them. I feel like the worst human ever. I have to go back and have self-compassion and realize at that point in time, with what I knew, I did the best that I could do. And it was never to harm my kids. It was to try and help them, although it was not the right way to go about that. One of the things that 
things is one of the things that Dr. Vanderkolk says is if the people are supposed that are supposed to be there for you are sources of danger, things become complicated because love and danger gets get all mixed up with each other. And boy, don't we know that. There are some people who can hear you speak a thousand words, but still not understand you. And then there are those that can understand you without speaking a word. And I think that's, that was a big trap for me. That led me into a relationship with someone very, very dangerous for me. I say dangerous, but at the same time, it was very healing because in that relationship, I was able to get a lot of things that my mother should have given me that I did not get. And I'm not the only one that noticed that. I was speaking with a member of my family, oh, I don't know, maybe six months, a year ago. And they said, your relationship with this person was very good for you. And I spoke with another friend that sort of knew more that was going on and said that relationship was very toxic for you. And it was. It was both of those things. It was very, very healing and it was very, very toxic. And then I found it really interesting and validating that my family member said, your husband has done more harm to you than he has good. And that's kind of paraphrased. And I was really taken aback at first because I'm thinking, you know, how did how did they see this? Because we haven't really been around them much. And I guess it was through, you know, I don't know, things that they saw when we were all together, things that other people saw after our divorce they would come up to me and ask me, is this happening? Is this happening? Is this happening? And I would be really like confused. And and how did you know? Why are you asking me this? And their answer was always the same. It was because I was in the very same situation. So I really don't know where I stand right now as far as this relationship. I know that we're in it for the long haul. Are we going to live two separate lives or are we going to live one together? At this point, I think two separate lives is the most realistic. It's the safest for me. But that all really depends on him and his choices. I was able to get him to download a book that I hope that he'll listen to and be able to to recognize some things because I don't hate the man at all. And, And he's a good man. He's a very good man. He, he, I just know he's got a lot of pains and a lot of traumas that I can't let hurt me anymore. And I don't want mine to hurt him. So it could be kind of, um, this may be a learning curve for a lot of people in this family. You know, kids have seen 
one of the, well, I guess I should say one of the things that I saw in him was overindulging the children. And I said something to him today about you weren't overindulging our kids. You were overindulging the little boy that was so severely hurt. And I feel almost like I was treated the way he saw his mother treated. Not as severely in any way, but I still feel that way. And so our relationship at this point is not a safe relationship. We're friends. Oh my gosh, I have a lot of fun with him. We have a lot of fun. But there's a long way to go. And the reason I'm telling you this is so that you're not alone. A lot of people are going to say things like, why are you throwing your dirty laundry out? Blah, 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 blah. It's not. If you have a problem with it, feel free to click off and go somewhere else. But there are people out there that are hurting. And maybe if some of you were brave enough, and I'm not speaking to all of you guys, just a few of you, brave enough to tell your stories and your injuries and how you've been hurt, maybe this could be a more loving warm, understanding planet that we live on. You know, I don't know what the answer is. I just know that I am one messed up girl looking for a way. I'm slowly realizing, as I said, how I've traumatized my kids so unintentionally, but that doesn't take the pain away from them or me. Realizing the way I actively sought out relationships or I could try to maybe fix the relationship I had with my parents and it didn't work, obviously. And then when we, we remarried, I really thought things had changed and I don't know if I thought things were cha had changed or if it was just safe for me. I don't know if I'm going to catch flack for this. I hope not. I just want to be honest. I've told everyone I'm going to be honest on this. Even with, you know, my flaws, the things that I've done. My gosh. We need like a whole year series for that part. I think one of the biggest things that I would like for you to remember to take away from this is that trauma is a brain injury. The trauma part happened way back when. It's still back there. But the imprint it left on our soul travels through life with us. I also wanted to say, Dr. Vanderkolk was speaking about his advocacy for theater for art programs, for dancing, for things of that nature, for people with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And a lot of people that I know that have CPTSD, they gravitate, one, towards motorcycles. I'll explain that in a second. And they are very artistic. I think in a way, he's onto something with that because we can get in touch with our inner selves. We can draw we can draw our pain. We can write. Ironically enough, some of, I think, my best writings were done at the darkest times of my life. And they are, they are very dark. They're very, um, 
introspective, I guess, and how I was feeling at the time. But they're also, I think, some, some of my best pieces of, of writing. I was going to say literature. I can't say literature. Of writing. I think they really are beautiful in a very dark way. The same with my photography. And I really noticed my photography change over the years from portraits to portrait portraits of family and friends and happiness to portraits of trying to capture the human soul to urban art and the feeling or feelings that lead that have led up to some of these urban photographs where things have been destroyed and damaged and people's hurt has been spewed forth and as for for motorcycles well Let's get back to the arts. Singing. My son was very mentally ill. And he was very troubled. He was very hurt. And he got his thoughts across through writing songs and music. And they were beautiful. And he really had a way of... You know, a lot of my songwriting friends do have that ability to tap into those feelings and put them so beautifully together that if you're hurt and you felt that, you're listening to the lyrics. If you haven't felt it, you're listening to the melody. You're listening to the music. Now, with motorcycles. When I started riding motorcycles, I didn't really know why. I know I wanted to do it. I think it was something I thought I could conquer and be proud of myself. It was an achievement here. I'm riding this, you know, almost 900 pound motorcycle. I'm controlling it. And it was sort of a badge of honor that I got to that point. But a lot of the people I've made along, met along the way have CPTSD. And I think one of the things that motorcycles do for us that are wounded in this way for me, it's the white noise. I don't like listening to music on my motorcycle. I like to think or not think. It helps me either process emotions or hear white noise and look at the sights and look at the beauty and see everything that's out there. But most of all, it's a feeling of control. Like I said, I'm controlling this motorcycle. It's not controlling me. I'm controlling it. When so much of my life has been out of control, there is this big Harley Davidson that I'm controlling. With that, guys, I want to ask any of you that would like to come on as a guest, please email me at diggingthroughdominoes at gmail.com. That's D-I-G-G-I-N-G-T-H-R-O-U-G-H-D-O-M-I-N-O-E-S at gmail.com. I'll put that in the show notes below. I am very interested in having people either anonymously or, or not anonymously share their stories. I feel that for me, it's one of the best therapies is to be able to share my story. It helps get it out. It helps get it off of my chest. 
And the best thing is it helps people know they're not alone in this game of life. That, guys, I'm going to say goodbye. Hopefully I will have another one up Tuesday, if not sometime next week. I am going to have to say, let me see, on um, July 17th through 21st, I'm going to be out of town. So I'm going to have try and have an, an additional one made that can post on that time. My son and I are, be, are going to be taking a tour of the Northwest and doing a lot of photographing. And I'm hoping to have maybe a vlog, just a regular vlog up on my channel and just have fun with my son and have a great time. Until, until then, guys, please, in the comments, feel free to email me, talk to each other, form your own community. You know, let me know, would you like a Facebook group where you guys can talk and everything? Some of you guys out there, get in touch with me because I know we've already spoken about this, about coming on as a guest. I really want to do that. So let me know dates that are good for you, times and all of that. And until then, I hope I didn't ramble too much. I hope some of this made sense to you. I hope I didn't offend anyone. It was certainly not my intention. My sole intentions were to be open and honest, admit my faults, and let you know where I am in this process. Yeah, good thoughts and prayers to be good for me right now. I'm uh, pretty devastated about the realization of what I've done to some of my kids. And I, I think knowing that, I also have the feeling there are going to be other things that are going to surface that are like, oh my gosh, I had completely forgotten about that. Okay, guys, talk to you later. Peace. Thank you for listening to Digging Through Dominoes. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, connect with Terry on Facebook and Instagram at Digging Through Dominoes, on Twitter at Digging Dominoes, and online at DiggingThroughDominoes.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.